Hello, I'm James Cornby and welcome to Capital Talk, the private wealth podcast brought to you by Stevenson Harwood. Thank you everyone for joining us and welcome to the first lockdown version of Capital Talk. And I'm very happy to have with us today, Jeff Cook, who many people will already know for a long time was the chief executive of Jersey Finance and is now an independent director and consultant. And welcome, Jeff. Thank you, James. Thank you very much. Very pleased to be asked on the show. Now, obviously, we're all um, doing things a bit differently because of COVID-19. I just wanted to ask you how you're coping with the lockdown and how it's treating you. Yeah, well, I, I, in many ways, I feel quite fortunate because um, just attached to my house to my garden, I have a garden office and uh, it was completed just in time for the lockdown. It's quite a recent uh, development. So it's all kitted out with desks and computers and printers, just like the office at work. So. And I look out across a little uh, a little wooded valley, green pastures, and uh, they've just brought the sheep and the spring lambs in. So I, I, I feel quite privileged in many ways. Yeah, You're making us all jealous, Jeff, although that does sound like a glorified garden shed. Well, I call it the Goffis, but where I Goffis. come from in Yorkshire, my compatriots would call it a shed. Yeah. E- excellent. Um, I'm sure it's a very nice shed. Now, on, on the topic of COVID-19, and obviously there's no other topic in the news at the moment. What's actually happening in Jersey generally? So Jersey is very much follow the same pattern as the UK. So uh, uh, heavy reliance on medical experts and this desire to uh, to flatten the curve. Here they've actually crushed it. There's hardly yeah. any, any curve at all. Uh, but obviously cautious about relenting too early in case it, um, it reappears. Okay, Jeff, we were talking about the effect of COVID-19 on the island on a very personal level, really, you know, what it means to be at work. But there's a, there's a bigger discussion, isn't there, that what's going to be the long-term effect on Jersey, the Crown dependencies, yes. when this is resolved? It's a big story. It's so big it's pushed Brexit. I'm almost nostalgic for Brexit. I don't know about you. <laughs> You know, <laughs> that used to be on the papers every day. And I'm, yeah. I'm nostalgic for news other than COVID-19. So I just wondered if if you could give us the view from Jersey as to how is Jersey and the, how are the Crown dependencies going to cope in yeah. the light of COVID-19 and Brexit? Brexit still supposed to be happening at the end of this calendar year. Sure, yeah. Well, in terms of COVID-19, uh, they're better placed than many countries because uh, the Crown dependencies really have negligible debt. And they actually sit on quite significant assets in proportion to the size of their economies. And they also have reserves. Uh, so they're in a very different position to the large deficit countries like UK, France, Germany, US. Uh, and they are expending some of those reserves. So in Jersey, there are business support schemes for certain sectors, the more uh, susceptible sectors to uh, being able to function where you need physical interaction, so hotels, retail agriculture, those sorts of things, where, where it's difficult to keep going. You haven't got the labour and, the, and they can't kind of move around. The finance industry isn't supported by that. But again, it's in a very fortunate place in many ways, because being a small island doing global business, it already works remotely. Yeah. Um, so I can see that the um, the general economy of Jersey is going to probably be pretty much better than other places. Then we have Brexit on the horizon. And of course, Jersey's not part of the European Union, so you're not leaving anything. 
But I just wonder if you could give us your insight into what the effect of the United Kingdom leaving the European Union will have on its relationship with its own crown dependencies. Yes, well, um, to, to a degree, we're still in the realms of speculation, despite it being less than a year away, because uh, we've only just got a little bit of clarity about that decision to leave, sort of finality, after a very long time of not really knowing, uh, only to run straight into COVID-19. And that seems to be absorbing the vast majority of the policy resource. The, the, the situation before, and I think probably now, is there shouldn't be a radical impact for the primary engines of the crown dependency economies. So in Jersey, about 60% of the tax take comes from the financial services sector and um, employs about 14,000 people. That isn't so dependent on European-originated business. So when, and when I say European, I mean U27. And uh, the principal activity with the U27 is a carrier of international capital where an EU27 country is the destination, not the origination point of that capital. Uh, and it goes into portfolio companies, goes into uh, development of infrastructure, goes into development of real estate. In Jersey's case, uh, it's worth about 188 billion euros. The jurisdiction manages or administers about 1.3 trillion sterling. Sorry, I'm mixing my currencies now. So it isn't such a large proportion of the business footprint here. The, the relationship with Britain itself is much more important as an international clearinghouse for business all over the world. So a bit more than a decade ago, Jersey was quite British European centric. It's still very committed to Britain, or a British family and a good neighbour to Europe. But more than half of its business originates outside of Europe now. I just wonder whether the UK government will be less aggressive towards the Crown dependencies and overseas territories and will seek out a more friendly relationship in a post-Brexit environment on the basis that we need as many trading partners as possible. Do you think Brexit could lead to a new dawn in the relationship between the CDOTs and the UK? Yes, I do. There's certainly that possibility on the table, whether that's an actual prospect to the moment. I think that's, that's yet to be determined and worked on. But if Britain is going to be going for global Britain and having big ambitions for developing trading relationships and business outside of European Union as well as in the European Union, and it seems to have that aspiration, that ambition, uh, and that's going to be services and science-led, which, which seems to be the indication, then pooling centres like the Crown Dependence has become more, not less valuable to them. Uh, to allow for international investors to pool, pool their money together and then make those investments efficiently. Now, you mentioned the um, the withdrawal nego negotiations with the EU. Obviously, there's a withdrawal agreement. We don't know what the final picture will look like uh, until December or even beyond. But it does also mean, I mean, we know the UK is going to leave. And with the UK gone, who's there to protect um, the Crown Dependencies and the Overseas Territories, because the only common law countries left in the EU after we've gone will be Ireland, Malta and Cyprus. They're the only countries that actually understand trust, for instance. Yeah. So I just wonder if the EU waters will be more perilous for the Crown Dependencies after the UK's left the EU. Yeah, well, I would say there's no doubt the risk is elevated, so I think you make a very good point. You know, if, if Britain's at the table as a member, or the United Kingdom is there as a member, it would have the ability to speak up for uh, the Crown Dependencies. And of course, Crown Dependencies aren't part of the EU, so they're not at the table. So you'd have to say, wouldn't you, that, you know, a major member 
could join like that would leave us with less representation than we would have had previously. Having said yeah. that, uh, so that is a risk. Uh, that is a risk that needs to be monitored, watched, uh, and, and indeed acted upon as much as possible in terms of influencing those levers the, the CDs can influence. But I think there are some there are some commonalities if you take the, the, if you put the different legal systems apart. Luxembourg, uh, Monaco, to a lesser degree Cyprus these days, certainly Malta, are all international structuring centres of one kind or another. They all try and be gateways to Europe uh, and achieve some kind of um, tax neutral pooling. That is, it's not that they're saving people piles of tax, they're just stopping it paying multiple tax on the same profits. Uh, and, and they would... Jeff, those Jeff, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but those those countries are quite small, aren't they? The the real power brokers in in the EU will be Germany and France. So I, I do worry about the influence of those countries. So what about the blacklist? Are you confident that the Crown dependencies will stay off? I mean, bearing in mind one of the overseas territories is on, Cayman's on, and so theoretically that country will be facing sanctions of some description. Uh, and could have issues with banking. How much of a threat is the EU blacklist to the Crown dependencies? Well, I'd like to do with you small and large country which very briefly before I answer, and I will answer that. But fiscal matters aren't majority voting. So uh, tax is still a sovereign matter by and large. So, you know, if Luxembourg doesn't like something, it can be a minority of one out of 28. So, and there are a number of countries in the EU that have low flat tax models not just those that do international structuring, so the, uh, the Balkan countries. So, so there are plenty of people that are concerned about moving to uh, a social market, high-tax, high-spend model within the, within the EU. So I think that will have some moderating effect on policy. As far as the blacklist is concerned, an important thing to remember is uh, the EU, by and large, not completely, we usually go a little bit further, but by and large subscribe to international standards. And the international standard set on uh, transparency and tax is primarily OECD on financial crime. It's the FATF. They can't really ignore those uh, organisations completely because they're subscribing members to those um, international fora. They can't fund them and they've signed up to the original treaties. So the, the recent blacklists, which the way they developed, they're gradually, as you say, developing these concepts. It used to be um, just information. You know, there's been an attempt at rates in the past, in several attempts at trying to, to specify a, you know, a, a standard rate. That's always failed because of that sovereign issue of countries with different taxes that not want to go down that route. I don't think there's any sign of that happening very soon. So the latest is substance. Uh, and that's where the, I, I believe, the Cayman uh, just got the wrong side of, of, I think, a deadline on the legislation. So you're relatively um, confident that the Crown dependencies can stay on the right side of the line. You don't think that uh, the Code of Conduct group is going to start getting naughty and introducing rules that there's absolutely no chance you can comply with? Well, that's always a risk. But if if that becomes overtly uh, discriminatory, the EU's own four freedoms, I think, come into play. And one of those freedoms is the freedom of the capital. So if the EU itself introduces measures that clearly aren't international standards, they clearly don't require their own countries, but impose them uh, on principally smaller countries, who aren't significant trading partners, in a discriminatory fashion, I think there would be recourse to the European Court of Justice and to uh, 
uh, invoking the um, freedom of capital. Moving on, because obviously discussion about EU blacklist is always depressing. Do you see any shining good news for crown dependencies and, and the international finance centres in general going forward? I mean, are you generally optimistic about the future? Well, I certainly was just pre-COVID. So if you went back uh, sort of a decade and um, you saw, or you went back 20 years, you wheeled back to things like financial crimes legislation, the CDOT's uh, relatively small centres absorbed all of that legislation, ask, came out the other side of it, I think stronger, more transparent, greater expertise, uh, and were actually stronger at the end of all of that than they were at the beginning. They were bigger, they'd done more business. And I think the same thing happened post the financial crisis. So financial crisis forced a big focus on tax dollars. Uh, as countries and you know, bail banks and institutions out. Um, that, that debt was socialised onto the public sector balance sheet. So there's a huge focus on are people paying the tax that they should be. That's, uh, you know, a, a lot of them were there already or on the journey, but it's accelerated the journey to full transparency. So you can't really book business now in IFCs without the home country of the investor knowing exactly what they've got there uh, on a real-time basis with automatic exchange of information um, every 12 months. So they've proven they can manage in an environment where there's full transparency, where you're not dependent on business that people would frown upon. They've prospered because they add value to transactions. They make transactions less expensive, they enable the efficient pooling of capital, and they help people to build and buy stuff around the world. So that demand isn't going to go away because the world has got wealthier. Uh, we'll see in the next 30 years the greatest wealth transfer the world's ever seen. As the baby boomers pass their wealth to the next generation, we still have population growth and we've got amazing demographics in the Middle East and in Asia where there is going to be continuing demand from new consumer classes which will need investment capital to fulfill it. So. Trend-wise, structurally, I'd be very confident about them having a good future. Before you go, I just wanted to ask you whether you had any um, naughty childhood treats that you're getting nostalgic about in lockdown, because nostalgia seems to be the topic at the moment as people get stuck at home. So what was your childhood treat? Well, what springs into mind, I probably can't remember this quite right, I think it was the advert at the time, but um, it went something like, a finger of fudge is just enough to give your kids a treat. I think so. So I used to adore those little fingers of fudge. I don't remember them. I used yeah. to love Jeff. I used to love a finger of fudge. One of the reasons I asked this question was that when I was a kid, I used to love wagon wheels. Oh yeah. I don't know if you remember them, but not that long ago, I'd say within the last couple of years, I saw a wagon wheel in a shop or a cafe, and I decided to buy it because I wanted this nostalgic moment, and it was absolutely disgusting. Oh, really? So I just wonder how many of these childhood treats, if we revisit them and, and actually have them, we realise they weren't very nice after all. I mean, the wagon wheel was horrible. It was really nasty chocolate. It was overly sweet, and it seemed to be filled with shaving foam. Right. <laughs> totally horrible. But I'm sure a finger of fudge is still just enough to give you a treat. Thank you very much for your time today and, and sharing with our audience your insights into jersey and the, the world of international finance and i hope that the lockdown continues to treat you well thank you very much james it's very kind of you to ask me onto the uh, podcast enjoyed it very much and um 
I hope that you, uh, in turn, keep well and keep broadcasting. And on that note, thank you very much to Jeff and thank you for all of you for listening. Thank you for listening to Capital Talk, brought to you by Stevenson Harwood. I'm James Cornby and I look forward to seeing you next time.